BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome to the Science of Success with your host, Matt Bonner. Welcome to the Science of Success. I'm your host, Matt Bodner. I'm an entrepreneur and investor in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm obsessed with the mindset of success and the psychology of performance. I've read hundreds of books, conducted countless hours of research and study, and I'm going to take you on a journey into the human mind and what makes peak performers tick with a focus on always having our discussions rooted in psychological research and scientific fact, not opinion. In this episode, we discuss why the happiness movement has done us a disservice and sometimes actually makes things worse, how perfectionism creates an illusion of control and distorts your reality, how to become aware of the critical inner voice at the root of your pain and unhealthy habits, and the incredible power of self-compassion, and much more with Megan Bruno. The Science of Success continues to grow with more than 640,000 downloads, listeners in over 100 countries, hitting number one new and noteworthy, and more. A lot of our listeners are curious about how to organize and remember all this information. I get tons of listener emails and comments saying, Matt, you read so many books, you do so much research, how do you keep track of all this stuff? We put together an incredible guide for anybody that's listening. You can get it for totally for free that will help you organize and remember all of this incredible information. This is how I keep track of everything. It's the personal system that I use. You can get it totally for free. All you have to do is text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Again, it's a guide we created called How to Organize and Remember Everything. I get emails all the time of listeners telling me how much they love this guide and how awesome it is. You can get it. All you have to do is text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Or you can go to scienceofsuccess.co, that's scienceofsuccess.co, put in your email, and we'll send you the free guide today. In our previous episode, we discussed lessons from 25 years of studying the evolution of human emotion, examined whether the Machiavellian concept of power still works, explored the surprising scientific data on how you can acquire power, and looked closely at the foundations of enduring power from studies of military units on how to achieve and maintain power with Dr. Dacker Keltner. If you want to understand deeply how to acquire power and what makes you lose it, listen to that episode. 
Today, we have another exciting guest on the show, Megan Bruneau. Megan is a psychotherapist, wellness coach, writer, podcast host, and the creator of OneShrinksPerspective.com. After years of perfectionism-fueled depression, anxiety, eating disorders, and more, she discovered how to like herself, take risks, and find success without beating herself up to get there. Megan, welcome to the Science of Success. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. I'm stoked to be here. Well, we're very excited to have you on. So for listeners who may not be familiar with you, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Oh, gosh. What do you want to know? I, like you said, I'm a psychotherapist. I'm a wellness coach, a writer, podcast host, all of that. And I have a real interest in helping people change their relationships to themselves so that they're able to take the risks that they want and follow their dreams and that kind of thing. I have a background in personal training, nutrition, yoga. So I take like a really holistic approach to mental health, but I'm not like anti-medication or anything like that. Yeah. And I'm just, I, I also have like a real vested interest in helping people realize the utility in their emotions, because I think we have this like super pathologizing culture that we live in that tells people they shouldn't feel sad or anxious or any of those sorts of things. And the happiness movement has really done us a disservice. So yeah, my main purposes for being out there are to help people uh, learn how to like themselves more and make space for their difficult feelings and experiences. So when you say the happiness movement has done us a disservice, tell me about that. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot in positive psychology and like the happiness industry that I think is very helpful for people, particularly a focus on self-growth and looking in, inward and things like that. However, there's a lot out there around like positive thinking and choosing happy. And like, you see a lot of this stuff out there on Instagram and, you know, hear people saying like, oh, it's just happiness is a choice. And what that does is it, it actually makes people feel worse, you know, especially if you're dealing with depression or going through a rough time. And even like the idea of gratitude, while gratitude is like a super effective intervention, if used effectively, if you just kind of like are using it to invalidate what you're going through and you're like, oh, there's children starting in Africa, or these are first world problems. You don't have any reason to be upset. What it does is it creates what we call secondary emotions. So we have primary emotions and we have secondary emotions. And our primary emotions are basically the feelings that we feel that are super evolutionary, like they're there for a reason. Like you feel loneliness because it will make you connect. You feel anxiety because it's telling you to prepare for something or be vigilant or like be on the lookout because you may be in danger. Sometimes we feel depression because we're not living the life that we want to live. And depression is telling us like we need to sort our shit out. And really, like every emotion has utility in it. And a lot of these emotions are very uncomfortable and they're meant to be that way because that's motivating. We're far more motivated to take action when we feel uncomfortable to, in order to alleviate that discomfort. And so this idea that like we need to only feel comfortable emotions such as like happiness and excitement and calm what happens is when we start feeling these uncomfortable emotions, which I said are these like primary evolutionary emotions, we then judge ourselves for feeling them. So we're like, oh my gosh, you're so weak or you're pathetic or you're being ingrate or you're doing it wrong. Like you just can't be happy like everyone else. And then we create this, this layer of what, as I said, we're called secondary emotions, which come out of self-judgment. And that might be shame or anxiety or anger, you know, for feeling sadness or shame or guilt or depression or whatever. So basically like what this happiness movement has done is it's created in some cases for a lot of people, another layer of emotions and another layer of suffering that comes out of judging ourselves for feeling anything that's not happiness. Does that make sense? That definitely makes sense. I'm curious, tell me or dive a little bit more into the idea of self-judgment. Yeah. So, I mean, we all have our 
inner dialogue going on, you know, that really evaluates the stimuli in our lives. So like external stuff uh, and the world that, you know, our, our day to day and everything and like moment to moment. But we have this like real inner voice. And it's not, this is not like a, like, oh, you're hearing voices in your head. It's just like, if you start to pay attention to it, you'll notice like you have thoughts and that's like an interpretation of your experience. And we tend to internalize Usually we internalize the voices of like our caregivers or for some people it's, you know, if they were really bullied in high school or, you know, had like a really critical sibling. But usually like we are, the way that we relate to ourselves is kind of a a compilation of, you know, how the people around us have related to us growing up. So for some of us, we're like really hyper judgmental around anything that we do. And we're super self-critical and this kind of gets into perfectionism, which I imagine I'll talk about at some point, but we judge ourselves for anything that we perceive to be not meeting expectations. And I think when we think about expectations, we, we oftentimes think of like performance, but we have expectations for ourselves around like our mood as well. You know, our thoughts that we have just our day-to-day that doesn't necessarily always involve performance. Like we judge ourselves for how we feel. So that's sort of self-judgment in the context of judging ourselves for having a certain emotional experience or certain thoughts. But we tend to just be like, I mean, I imagine many people listening to this can relate to being hyper self-critical and self-judgmental or have inward judgment. I think you made a really important point and something that kind of gets lost a lot of the time, which is that you know, it's easy to think about sort of anxiety or performance anxiety, especially in the context of, you know, sort of performing or achieving result. But the undercurrent there is that we also have expectations about what our mood should be. And if that doesn't happen, then, you know, we can get into these sort of cycles of self-judgment and and waves of secondary emotions. Totally. And that's really like performance anxiety, you know? I mean, it takes us out of being able to perform and just be in the moment and like be in the flow of what we're doing best because we're so hyper-focused on like the experience we're having. And it's the same thing with social anxiety too, or really any form of anxiety, but it's like, you know, you go into a setting and let's say you're feeling a bit anxious because you don't know anybody there and, you know, you're maybe feeling a bit self-conscious and that's normal. You know, you human beings want to be accepted. Like we want to be liked. That's very primal of us because if you weren't accepted in caveman days, like you were probably going to die. Right. So it's really natural to have that desire to be accepted and to not be rejected and to feel self-conscious and kind of wonder like, oh, you know, I want to make sure that I'm socially acting in a way that will be received well, you know, as opposed to being rejected or isolated. But oftentimes with social anxiety, like what happens is then we're aware of that anxiety and we're like, oh my God, you're feeling anxious. Stop it. You have to like, you have to go into this, like you're going to rock it. Like you own it. Like, you know, you're super, super confident and you don't feel confident and oh no. And people can see that. And like, you're a failure and everyone can tell what you're thinking. And like, we start to really spiral with some of these thoughts that are really focused around like how we believe we should be presenting ourselves emotionally as well as, as, you know, outwardly. So when we can give ourselves permission to like, feel feelings and some of them being uncomfortable ones while still having an experience, you know, while still going up there and giving the presentation, while still, you know, going to the party and talking or going on the date, you know, or going on the podcast or whatever, then it's much less painful and distressful because we're like, yeah, that's cool. Like I'm making space for some of those feelings. Like those are, those are just there to help me. So if you get caught in kind of a spiral of, of thoughts like that, what are some things you can do to break out of it? I mean, I think it's sort of a spectrum because 
you know, if we get so caught that we're feeling like we're on like the verge of a panic attack, you know, in that case, it might be helpful to remove yourself from the situation and kind of reset, right? I mean, if you're feeling like you're having real physical symptoms of anxiety and, you know, you're like sweating like crazy and like you just can't, because what happens with anxiety is it's like the fight or flight response, right? So our body prepares for fight or flight. And so what that looks like physiologically is like cortisol starts pumping through our system and, you know, all of our blood kind of drains out of our prefrontal cortex, which is where like logic and decision-making happens. And it goes into like our large muscle groups getting prepared to like fight or flee. And, you know, our pupils dilate and our digestion shuts off. And like, we just like, we're getting prepared because we feel stress, right? So if you feel like you're at a point where physiologically you're beyond the point of being able to kind of like practice mindfulness, which is what I imagine we'll get into as well. Then I would say like remove yourself from the situation if possible and like give yourself permission to kind of like reset, you know, do something. And so this is, I mean, maybe it'd be helpful to work with an example. Like what, what comes to mind for you, Matt, like when you think about feeling like you would be spiraling and just be like super overwhelmed with those thoughts and feelings? Yeah. I mean, you know, one thing that sometimes creates anxiety for me is like being like, I have like mild claustrophobia. So like being on a plane sometimes I get very anxious. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's an interesting one because like, I mean, we have to also be realistic with our options, right? Like you're not going to open the emergency exit and like jump out of the plane. Like that's just not an option. I mean, maybe it is. I I like to think that it's not because I hope that you can't open those things like a random bystander can't if they get really anxious. But so we also have to look at like, okay, well, what's realistic, right? So you're feeling really claustrophobic on the plane. And actually, I mean, that might be a place to practice more of the mindfulness that, you know, I'll get into, but it also might be like, okay, what can I do in this situation to help me feel more comfortable? Can I like go to the bathroom? You know, can I listen to some music? Can I focus on my breath? Like, is there something that I can do that can help me, you know, just stop the kind of spiraling thoughts and feelings, but however, being realistic that like you are on that plane and like from the moment it takes off until the moment it lands, like you can't get off. So it's, that's an interesting example because oftentimes like we can remove ourselves from a situation. And sometimes like, like I'm a big proponent of do what serves you better. So in some cases, like in a person's healing or recovery or like introspection or self-growth period of their life, you might need to take yourself, like, let's say you're trying to get used to riding the subway, right? And it's something that causes you a lot of anxiety. So for someone like yourself with claustrophobia, like maybe that's a challenge at times, like you're riding during rush hour, like that's going to be super stressful. And through mindfulness and getting to know like your limits and stuff, there might be times where you're like, okay, I'm going to ride two stops and then I'm getting off because that's just like too distressful for me. And I'm not trying to make myself suffer more than I need to. However, I'm trying to like, I'm I'm like growing my emotional muscles. You know what I mean? So like, it's kind of like going to the gym. Like we want to build tolerance for these difficult emotions that if we don't pay attention to them, we end up becoming slaves to them. So if every time you felt anxiety, if if every time you got on the subway, you felt anxiety and you listened to that anxiety and did exactly what it told you and like, I'm getting off, you're never going to be able to ride the subway. And I realize I've kind of like taken your plane example to the subway, but I just, I feel like that might be an easier one to sort of show the different options. Is that cool? Yeah, that's totally fine. Uh, Okay, cool. So if every time you get on the subway, you get off the moment you feel anxiety, it's like, that's cool. Like you're, maybe that's what you need, but it's also not going to necessarily help you develop comfort with the discomfort anxiety gives you. You know what I mean? So you want to be able to kind of find this balance where you're like, okay, like some days you might feel empowered to ride the subway two to three stops and, you know, eventually you're riding it like 
five, 10, 15, eventually writing it for hours. I'm like, that's awesome. But other days, you know, it might be too distressful for you and you can get off. So there's like this kind of balance between being like, okay, I'm feeling a difficult emotion right now. And in your case of like being on the plane, it's like this, yes, claustrophobia, but ultimately that's, that's anxiety. And how, here are my options. I want to alleviate, I want to cope with that anxiety. My options are I can either remove myself from the situation that's causing me anxiety or causing me this difficult emotion, or I can kind of put up my umbrella in like the storm of this emotion and still be in the storm, but comfort myself enough that I can cope with it. And that's where like self-compassion comes in. And that's where, you know, connection comes in and that's where self-soothing comes in. So you kind of like the first step would be, okay, what choice do I want to make here? Do I want to choose to fully remove myself from the situation that's causing me this emotion so I can just like alleviate the emotion entirely? Or do I have enough resilience and resources in this moment to stick it out And it's not going to be like so, so distressful that I'm going to feel traumatized essentially. And if that's the case, if I want to make the choice to stay, then what do I need? So in your case of the plane example, like you don't really have a choice. You are on that plane and like you're just going to have to put up your umbrella and hope that you, you have an umbrella. And like, what does that look like? Is that music? Is that the person next to you? Is that focusing on your breath? Is that going to the bathroom? Like what's your kind of way of coping with that? But then the example of like the subway, you have to make that decision, okay, am I going to get off and not feel that anxiety because I'm off and that's very relieving, but I also know that that's not going to help me on my path to where building my emotional tolerance muscles, or am I going to, you know, pay attention to that anxiety that I'm feeling and make some space for it and remind myself that it's going to pass, it's impermanent, you know, and remind myself that it's not going to kill me and, you know, focus on my breath or, and like, put in that music or again, like talk to the person next to me or again, you know, count to 10, like, or whatever you're in practice, self-compassion, all that sort of stuff. So I guess like coming back to your original question of like, what are the tools that a person can enact when they're feeling like they're spiraling and they're aware of that? I mean, the first step is obviously like this mindfulness of like becoming aware of what you're experiencing and noticing like, okay, what is happening for me right now? Okay. I notice I'm spiraling. And then mean like, am I in a place of this spiraling where I need to just like shut it off and get the fuck out of here? Or can I like sit with the spiraling to a certain extent and like pay attention to it and ask myself what I need so that I don't necessarily need to remove myself from the party or stop the presentation or, you know, leave the date or turn off the podcast mic or whatever. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And the two things that I found super helpful in a situation like that, where, you you know, there's no way you can kind of leave is one kind of just, just really trying to practice kind of acceptance and, you know, accepting all the emotions and feelings that you're having. And the other one is, is something I know you've talked about, which is sort of the idea of impermanence and, and the sense that, you know, everything is temporary in all anxiety eventually subsides. And so just sort of writing it out and accepting it as it is so that you can kind of eventually sort of move through it. Totally. I mean, we live in a world where we're sold this message that everything is permanent and we need to reach this permanent state of whatever or of happiness or success. And like, that's just not reality. I mean, that sells a lot of things because people think if they buy something, then they're going to be happy, you know, or if they get married or if they buy the house or, you know, if they get the promotion or whatever. And that's just not how life works. I mean, life is like a series of, of experiences woven together and, ultimately what it all comes back to is like the sensations that we feel and those are a result of like our interpretations and our emotional experiences and when we can 
make peace with the fact that like nothing is permanent. Everything is impermanent. Everything is constantly changing. It makes it, it's actually like, I mean, it's painful on some levels because it's like, oh, that's too bad. I really wanted to just like grab happiness and hold on to it for the rest of my life. But it's also really liberating because we're like, wow, any of these painful experiences that I may currently be going through or that I know I'm afraid of going through, those are going to pass as well. It's kind of like the, this too shall pass. And so in those moments when we're going through that storm of, you know, whatever the emotional experience is, we have things that we can do that can make it worse, such as judging ourselves or pushing the emotion down or telling ourselves that like we're pathetic or whatever, or telling ourselves it's going to last forever. And that's like, there's a Buddhist saying that like pain times struggle equals suffering. And that's when we create suffering. So like life has pain in it. That's just like what life is. It's, it's filled with grief and disappointment and loss and sadness and like, you know, things not going the way that you want them to. And like, inevitably there are going to be painful emotions alongside all of the beautiful, wonderful, like really comfortable ones. And when we judge ourselves for feeling those, we create additional suffering. So that's kind of like the whole pain time struggle equals suffering thing. So if you think about like, you know, you're going out there into the emotional storm that you can't avoid, you know, you make things a lot worse by practicing self-judgment and all the things I mentioned. That's kind of like being like, oh, I think I'm just gonna like, I don't know, take off all my my clothes and like, I don't know, roll around in the snow or something like that. Like that probably would make the storm worse. However, there are certain things that you can do, again, such as like putting up that umbrella or like putting on the jacket and like mixing together a snowstorm and rainstorm, whatever storm works for you, come up with your own metaphor. But basically through practicing self-compassion, which is making space for the difficult feeling through mindfulness, reminding ourselves that like we're human and, you know, emotions are a natural part of our experience. And it doesn't mean that we're broken and doesn't mean there's something wrong with us. And many other people, millions of other people are feeling a very similar emotion or the same emotion at this time. And that's kind of like what unites all of us. And then also practicing self-kindness, which is essentially like saying what yourself, saying to yourself what you would to a friend. And one that is, uh, I mean, I advise clients to use and I use it with myself is like starting your dialogue with yourself in a moment of distress with it's understandable you're feeling because. So being like, hey, it's understandable that you're feeling anxious right now. Like, because you want to perform well in this presentation or like you want to give a good impression on this date or, you know, you want to do well on this test or, you know, you want to do well in this interview or like whatever the anxiety is coming from, like it's coming from a good place. It's there to help you, right? So just taking away that layer of judgment that comes from like, stop feeling anxious, you're being so weak and actually being like, hey, it's understandable you're feeling anxious right now, validating your experience. So that's kind of like one of the ways that we can make space for that emotion and be able to kind of like ride it out. But then also, as you said, like relying on this piece of impermanence, it's like, I'm going to practice this self-compassion with the knowledge that the emotion will pass. Like that's a central facet of self-compassion. Yes, yeah, so it just like makes it far less distressful and anxiety provoking to have a difficult emotional experience when we have all of this in mind. So tell me a little bit more about kind of self-kindness and, and self-compassion. And you mentioned something about the way you would treat a friend. Totally. So self-compassion, like the real gurus there are Paul Gilbert and Kristen Neff. And like, they're amazing. I Paul Gilbert has a book called The Compassionate Mind. And Kristen Neff has one that's just called Self-Compassion, Changing the Way You Relate to Yourself or something like that. And they're both like amazing, amazing resources for anyone who's interested in this further. But basically what self-compassion is, is it's, it's a few things. It's sort of like the 
first it's, it's kind of like the response to the self-esteem movement of the 90s that really like screwed a lot of us up. So basically what that movement did was it was like, everyone gets a gold star. Everyone's, you're the best. You're perfect. You're perfect. You're perfect. And in reality, like that's not statistically possible because statistically like we're all average you know what I mean like some of us are better singers than others like some of us are better tennis players than others but at the end of the day like we're all ultimately average and like there's no sort of like no one's more worthy than anyone else and for some people that can be really terrifying especially for people who struggle with perfectionism where like their self-worth is very dependent on believing that they're better than other people so what self-compassion is, is it sort of a response to this? Because we, re- we we finally learned, we're like, oh my God, telling people that they're perfect doesn't work. You know, like, because what it does, like when you tell your child that they're perfect, they're perfect, they're the best of the best of the best, they actually then, their self-esteem or their self-worth gets very tied to always believing they're the best. And then they get out in the real world where they realize they're not the best. And they're like, oh my God, who am I? Like, I'm worthless. I'm nothing. No, so long as I'm not the best, you know? So Self-compassion is the answer to that. Self-compassion is like, hey, we're all imperfect. Like you're imperfect, I'm imperfect, and that's okay. Like we're all kind of like fumbling along through life together and nobody really knows what the fuck they're doing, but like, you know, we're trying and that's cool. And like you're allowed to be imperfect and that doesn't make you not worthy or not lovable or not desirable or any of those sorts of things. So that's kind of like the underlying, like it when people, because a lot of people when they hear self-compassion, or self-love, if you want to call it that, they think of it as being like, I'm going to look in the mirror and I'm going to tell myself I'm the best. And it's like, no, it's not about that. It's about sometimes looking in the mirror and being like, wow, like you're having a really rough day. And like, that's okay. You know, or like, yeah, maybe you're not super on your game and that's okay too. But there's still like a desire for growth and learning and getting to know yourself better and like, you know, being a better human. But the three, if you want to break self-compassion down, the three main kind of like action items that come out of it, are mindfulness, self-kindness, and this idea of like common humanity. So I'll, I'll speak about each of those. So mindfulness, you've probably heard of mindfulness before. Mindfulness is like a real buzzword these days. And in some cases, I think it's being misinterpreted because there's just such a focus on like, just be in the present. And like, that is a big part of mindfulness. But what often gets lost is that like the central components of mindfulness are non-judgment and acceptance and just kind of like curiosity and observation of that current moment. So it's not just about like being present. It's being present without judgment and with acceptance. And that's like, we can practice mindfulness toward the anxiety that we feel, the thoughts that we're having, you know, the bodily sensations that we're experiencing or the pain that we're feeling, the, you know, what we perceive of around us, like our current, you know, like our interpretation of the weather. I don't know, like we can practice mindfulness to kind of anything that's like taps into either any of our senses. So key, so mindfulness is like the first place that self-compassion starts because mindfulness is essentially like being aware without that judgment, with compassion, with acceptance, and just really, really like noticing what is happening with this sort of more like almost like as if you're watching a movie, like you're not over-identifying with it. So when you think about like how we react to life, basically what happens is there's a stimuli, like there's like something that happens, some sort of situation. And then we have this interpretation of what that is. And oftentimes that's where like the self-judgment comes in. And then we react. And oftentimes we forget that there's like the interpretation piece in the middle. Like we just have a situation and then we react, you know, like something happens and we, we freak out and we don't realize like, well, actually there's like this space in there that through practicing mindfulness and getting to know a little bit more about what that is and bringing more of it into your life, you actually get a lot more control over how you react to the world around you. So it actually like really empowers you to not necessarily have these like unhealthy or unserving reactions to emotions. So 
mindfulness is basically being like, okay, I notice I'm feeling something or I notice like a situation just happened. And let me like sit with that and just kind of like spend a moment acknowledging like what's going to be the best reaction here and then choosing how I want to react. And it's like something that they use really, that's where a lot of meditation is very helpful and yoga and like focusing on your breath and just starting to really like notice your thoughts without necessarily judging them or reacting to them or noticing your feelings, because then that like empowers you to actually make a decision that's more serving for you. So basically mindfulness is this idea of like, as I said, being aware. And so you start to become aware of, let's say, like this critical inner voice that is ultimately at the root of like a lot of your pain or a lot of your unhealthy habits. So that's like the first step there. You've got the mindfulness, you're paying attention. Then there's this self-kindness piece, which is like, what would I say to a friend in this situation? Like, am I going to tell a friend that they're like a huge screw up and like they're never going to amount to anything and like no one's ever going to love them and they're pathetic? Or like, am I, would I tell a friend like, oh my God, yeah, you're like so fat and ugly and like no one's going to love you. And oh my God, I can't believe you have cellulite. Like you're a failure at life. You know, like what am I going to tell a friend the same things that I'm telling myself right now? Probably not, right? Because most of us are far more compassionate and understandable and flexible with other people than we are with ourselves. So there's, you know, there's a mindfulness piece of recognizing like what's going on, how am I reacting to myself right now? What am I experiencing? Then there's the self the self kindness piece, and that's where like the example I used of this, it's understandable because can be really helpful. And then this common humanity piece, which is like, hey, I'm not alone in this. Like we're all in this together. Everyone goes through these sorts of experiences and feelings, like heartbreak, disappointment, grief, loss, pain, you know, frustration, envy, jealousy, rejection, anxiety, you know, depression, disappointment. I don't know. I'm probably repeating myself now, but like all of these painful feelings are just part of the human condition and part of what it is to like be alive. And it doesn't make you broken that you're feeling them. It makes you human. And that's like what unites us. So just really reminding yourself, like, I'm not the only person going through this right now. This does not make me broken. This does not make me like a bad human or a failure or like crazy or like any of the kinds of like pathologizing terms that we call ourselves when we experience something that we believe is not in line with like that happiness movement that I talked about earlier. So the common humanity piece is really helpful, not for like being like, oh, everyone else feels this. So therefore you shouldn't be upset. It's more like, Hey, you're not broken. It's cool. It's okay to feel this way. Like make space for it, you know? So, um, so those are like the main, like, that's what self-compassion is ultimately just to recap. It's the mindfulness piece. It's the self-kindness piece. It's the common humanity piece. And like when you can kind of bring all of those into your experience or any painful experience, it is like that umbrella or that, you know, jacket in the storm that's going to be really helpful for you in weathering it. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hiring the right person takes time, time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. 
That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want, and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. I'd love to dig in more on perfectionism. That's something that we've had a lot of listeners email in, ask about, and uh, are very interested in. And I love the definition that you use, which is the idea that your self-worth is dependent on being better than other people. Tell me more about that. Totally. So, you know, I define perfectionism as like having five characteristics and Yeah. Like I said, that sort of like self-worth being dependent on being better than other people. That's definitely one of them. And really like how I define that one is your self-worth is basically dependent on like your achievements and your performance and outcomes and like doing and productivity and like how you look. And inevitably, because we judge our performance in comparison to other people and comparison to like what the quote unquote average performance might be, and that's like our our frame of reference, then yeah, actually it, it is basically like being better than others, you know, being the best. And so that's a huge part of it. But there are also several other components that I think are really important and that we don't always recognize when we think of perfectionism. There's obviously like the fear of failure piece, and that's like a pretty classic one. But really what's underneath that is like a fear of difficult emotions. And I mean, in my opinion, that's really like what's at the root of all the problems in the world. (laughs) You know, we don't know how to sit with our uncomfortable emotions. And in our attempt to alleviate our emotional pain, we react impulsively or we react in like non-mindful ways. So basically it's like, yes, there's the fear of the feelings that come along with failure, but there's also just a fear of any uncomfortable emotion, a fear of like the emotions that come about with like uncertainty, you know, or feeling out of control because those are really uncomfortable experiences. However, they're very inevitable experiences in life. So people who are highly perfectionistic tend to be incredibly like routine and want to make sure that they can predict exactly how something's going to go and that like they feel this illusion of control in their behavior or their environment because the thought of feeling like anxiety or, you know, feeling out of control or feeling um, inadequacy or whatever other like difficult emotions they're struggling with is really, really terrifying. So they kind of create this like box that they stay in and this sort of like illusion that they've got it all together with themselves. But like what that comes out of is like not really taking risks or not putting themselves into situations where they might fail or where they might feel uncomfortable emotions. And it's like this vicious cycle because there's then the perception that they never really fail at anything or they never feel difficult emotions and they're like succeeding. But the reason they're succeeding, quote unquote, is because they're not taking any risks that would ever allow them to fail. So that whole the fear of the difficult emotions is like a big one there. But then there are are two other ones that are really like indicative of perfectionism. One is this idea of the critical inner voice. So I mentioned that earlier, like just like really being super hard on ourselves and 
responding to ourselves in ways that like we would never speak to a friend. So we're, and, and, and that perpetuates all the other stuff because it's like, oh, well, if I know that if I fail in my eyes or I don't meet expectations, then I'm going to respond to myself by being like a huge asshole and basically abusing myself. And I don't have like the tools to cope with that pain, then I'm definitely not going to take risks because if I fail, the way that I cope with failure is by essentially like self-abuse. And then the final one is um, these like unrealistically high expectations. So again, it's like all such a vicious cycle because then you have these unrealistically high expectations that are very inflexible as well. So it's like, I expect myself to perform at hundred percent. And let's say like you wake up and you're like super sick or, you know, you get dumped or, you know, your mom's in the hospital or like, they're just like things going on in your life or you're just like in a low mood, right? PMSing, you know, and you still hold yourself to those unrealistically high expectations. So we almost like set ourselves up for failure in doing that. And so it's like this really paralyzing, super anxiety provoking way of relating to yourself and to life because it's like you have to walk this like fine, fine line where like if you take the wrong step, everything crumbles. And that's why oftentimes people who relate to being perfectionistic can identify with being like, they think they're super anal or like they're high strung or like they just don't know how to relax. And it's because like there's so much riding on like whatever their next step is because at any at any wrong turn, everything could crumble and they'll feel so terrible about themselves. So just to like recap those five things for anyone listening, fear of failure, fear of uncomfortable feelings, unrealistically high expectations, critical inner voice, and then your self-worth being dependent on like these outcomes and achievements, which can often lead to people feeling as though they're like bipolar. Like I get a lot of clients who come in and they're like, pretty sure I'm bipolar. You know, like yesterday I felt really great and I was super happy. Like, you know, I like looked good and I like things were like going well at work and blah, blah, blah. And then the next day they're like, but then today I'm having a fat day and, you know, I got like rejected by this guy and I, you know, got feedback on this presentation and they said that I needed to work on this thing. And like, I just basically like feel like a failure of a human. And it's like, well, that's not being bipolar. That's having your self-worth be very dependent on like the outcomes and achievements piece. So those are the kind of like five factors of perfectionism. That's incredible. And so much of that stuff, I think not only resonates with me, but I think will really resonate with a lot of our listeners, I feel like in many cases, I put a lot of pressure on myself. And I'm curious, kind of walk me through maybe sort of a really simple example of an internal dialogue that you would use to, you know, kind of back away from something like that. Sure. Yeah. What's some, can you give me an example of like, what would be a position in which you'd be putting a lot of pressure on yourself? I mean, I think all kinds of different things. I don't know if I have a specific instance. Okay. Well, let's think of like, what would be something that uh, listeners would relate to? Okay. So like, I think as women, we put a lot of, and, and men too, obviously, but like we put a lot of pressure on ourselves for like our appearance, you know, and like definitely that might be like, you know, in terms of, of like how we feel and everything like that. And that's like feeling sexy. But a lot of times like women and people who are very perfectionistic put a lot of pressure on themselves around weight and like reaching a certain kind of goal that they perceive to be, again, that kind of like answer to their pain or will make them finally good enough, you know, or help them finally reach that place where they never feel anxiety anymore, you know, or it might be, you know, a way of maintaining this illusion of like kind of control and not having to deal with the anxiety that might say that they're not good enough, you know? So I think, you know, it's, I guess like with that example, there's like the pressure of this ultimate goal or a pressure to like always be a certain way that unfortunately really 
contaminates the joy that we could possibly have in life because it takes us away um, or takes us out of any moment where we could actually just like be there and experience it and enjoy it because we're constantly thinking like, oh, you know, what am I like? I have to make sure that I'm like getting to the gym or have to make sure that I'm exercising or have to make sure that it's like, you know, I stay within these like really tight parameters of like my expectations for myself around my appearance. So in that case, like self-compassion can be so powerful because it's this idea that's like, hey, hold up. Like your self-worth is like not dependent on a number on the scale. And like, you know, when you're on your deathbed, like, is it really going to be that important? Like how much you weighed when you were 28 or whatever? And, you know, is that what you look for in your friends and in your partners, like their physical appearance? Like, is that what's most important? And like, kind of like, tapping in more deeply into your values and things like that. And just essentially giving yourself um, permission to be imperfect. Now that's something where it's like, I guess like the pressure piece is more around this like ultimate goal, which is a more like that's kind of perfectionism in like a systemic sense, I suppose. But then there's also like the perfectionism where like, I think might be more related to what you were talking about, which is like a performance piece that's like more like a, an individual experience. So let's say it's like, giving a presentation. And so we have this pressure on ourselves and our mind starts to tell us things like you are, you know, you have to ace this presentation. And if you screw up, then that means that like you are a, like you're unhirable and like you are just like a waste of life and no one's ever going to take you seriously. And oh my God, then you're not going to be able to get a job. And like you're then just going to, you know, six months are going to go by and you're going to be unemployed and you're gonna have a gap on your resume. And then what's going to happen? And then, you know, nobody's ever going to want to hire you. And then you're going to come homeless. And then like, you're going to die or like, whatever, like we have these kind of like spiralistic thinking of believing that if something doesn't go as planned with this pressure that we're putting on ourselves, then like the worst thing ever is going to happen. And it's interesting because oftentimes we don't actually even like reach the point of like, oh, I'm going to be homeless. There's just this like intense anxiety and fear around like what happens if it doesn't go how I expect or hope it to go, you know? So it can be helpful in those situations where you're feeling a lot of pressure around your performance, whether it is like the presentation or the interview or the date or whatever to be like, okay, let's instead of like this, like visualization shit, like, I mean, and don't get me wrong, like visualization can be helpful, but like, instead of being like, this is going to go perfectly hundred percent. Yeah. It's going to go so well. I'm not going to screw up at all, which actually can keep our anxiety quite high because it keeps us in that like very tight, I don't know, like place where we can't screw up. It can be helpful to be like, Hey, you know what? Like you're probably going to jumble your words at some point, you know, and there might be something you say that doesn't make a ton of sense, or maybe your face is going to go red, or maybe your palms are going to sweat a little bit. And like, Maybe like you're not going to, you, 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 in fact, you're definitely not going to meet your expectations in every way because you're a human and there's like, no, you're not a robot. There's no way you could make this go perfectly, but like, that's okay. Like being able to permit yourself a little bit of like wiggle room in terms of the performance itself. Like that's one way that you're going to make your expectations like more realistic and thus make the anxiety less overwhelming. Because really when you think about it, like all of our painful emotions to a certain extent are come out of like the disparity between like our expectations and our reality. So like if your expectations are super, super, super high, there's more of a chance that like your reality is going to fall below those expectations. And in that space is going to be like disappointment, rejection, shame, guilt, 
you know, anxiety, frustration, like all those sorts of things. So when we can kind of like lower the expectations, not in a sense that like you're becoming complacent or you're not still expecting success from yourself, but when you can make them like a little bit more realistic and be like, Hey, like there's a little more wiggle room there for having like the odd, like jumble of your words here and there, you know, or the like odd sort of like embarrassing comment or something because you're a human and like, that's going to happen. Then it alleviates like the possibility of such strong emotions as a result of not reaching those expectations. And then it also alleviates like the anxiety that we feel when we are expecting ourselves to like hit that unrealistically high place. And I'm like having a moment myself right now myself where I'm like, I don't know if this is really making any sense. I don't know if this is going to be helpful. It's making a ton of sense. Uh, I think it's super helpful. (laughs) Okay, good. Well, that's good to hear. But like, you know, it's interesting because even as I'm saying all of that, like in my mind, I'm like, this is interesting. Like I'm saying these things, but I wonder if this is actually helpful to the listener. And like, oh my gosh, like I wonder what Matt's thinking right now. And like, is he like, is he going to go like, is is he and his producer after this going to be talking about this being like, wow, that girl was out to lunch. Right? Like, so I still have my mind that tells me these sorts of things. And of course, you know, it can be helpful to seek a little bit of reassurance and be like, Matt, like, am I, do I sound crazy? But it's also helpful to just be like, you know what? Like if that is the case, like it's okay. You know, (laughs) like you did your best. Like you told you not everything you're going to say is going to make perfect sense. And that's all right. Right. So I think like really the, the central kind of theme there is like, permit yourself to be a human, permit yourself to like make some errors. That's okay. It, and, and the other thing that we tend to do is we do something called globalizing. So when we don't meet our expectations, such as let's say it's like the presentation and, you know, one presentation or one interview goes poorly. And then we're like, oh my God, I'm so bad at public speaking. I should never do this again. I am like the worst. I I'm just like, I'm not a public speaker. I'm not good at that because like we had a really hard time with the experience of failure in our eyes. And so in order to prevent ourselves from ever feeling it again, we're like, I'm just never going to do that again. I'm going to avoid those situations. And I've determined that I am bad at public speaking or bad at, you know, speaking in front of audiences or bad at giving presentations. And so I'm never going to do it. And that's like very unhelpful because I mean, it prevents us from ever having opportunities to grow and learn and practice, which is like what we need to get better at things. But ultimately also it's just, it's, it's not, it's not the truth. Like you have one negative experience where you don't meet your expectations or like you really bomb something out of, you know, countless experiences where you probably rocked it. It's like, that's not helpful to be like, oh no, I now suck at this. Right. So that's something to keep in mind as well. Like alongside this whole, like be, let yourself be human thing. Also remember, like, don't make an interpretation that because you failed once you are a failure, you know, or because you like bombed a presentation that you don't know how to give presentations or, you know, because you had one bad date that like you're undateable, you know? So I would say in terms of just like things that people can take away from this, like trying to really keep in mind those two major things of being like, let yourself be a human rather than telling yourself everything's going to go perfectly. Actually tell yourself, you know what, like things aren't going to go perfectly. Aim for like 80% in every area of your life. Just aim for 80% and be like, look, I got 20% wiggle room. That's cool. 80% is awesome. And that's going to help alleviate a lot of your anxiety. And then also just constantly reminding yourself like one instance of quote unquote failure in your eyes does not make you a failure at whatever you're trying to do well. So I'm curious for, for somebody that kind of striving for achievement, excellence, you know, wants to be at the top of their field. How do you strike a balance between that and kind of the idea of self-compassion and sort of being kind to yourself? 
Totally. I think that's a great question. And I think it's something a lot of people struggle with when they're starting to move away from perfectionism and be like, okay, hold on. If I'm not performing to be the best, like how do I still make sure that I'm successful? And how do I still make sure that I'm not going to end up like, you know, not getting out of bed and gaining 200 pounds and like, just like dropping out of school or, you know, not working or whatever. So, I mean, I think the first thing to recognize is that like, a real characteristic of perfectionism is all or nothing thinking. So we tend to think like, oh my gosh, but if I'm not, you know, killing myself trying to strive for success, I'm going to become like what I completely have zero respect for, which is like this like crazy, like lazy person who's just like a freeloader and like has like no desire to live their life. And it's just like wait a waste, you know, like, so there's this kind of like we have the all or nothing thinking that comes in there. So the first thing to recognize is like, look, like if you start being a little bit more self-compassionate to yourself, it's actually like, it actually enhances your performance because what it does is it gives you, it empowers you to take risks and you need to take risks and step out of your comfort zone to grow and to get better and to like succeed more. So self-compassion is actually a tool for success. It's not like a tool that's going to just like, it's not like self-pity and just kind of like, telling yourself you don't need to keep striving for growth and development. So first of all, just like changing a bit of your understanding around like what self-compassion actually means. It's really like there to enhance your performance rather than like deplete it. But then also like coming back to your values ultimately. Again, having like our self-worth and like why we're on this earth being dependent on like, I don't know, some like recognition that is also impermanent and like no one else really cares about too much. And like, we're the ones who put the most pressure on ourselves to like look a certain way and achieve a certain amount. And like, who are we really doing this for? Like, and why? And like, what is that going to bring us? And so like, actually really like starting to ask some of these bigger questions, which you're not going to answer in like one sitting, but it's something to meditate on. And it's something to think about more and being like, okay, like, do I want to continue to ride this roller coaster of, feeling good when everything is going well in my life, but being, it being like a huge liability because, you know, you're so out of, you you don't have a lot of control and like all these like painful things in life are inevitable. Or do I want to kind of like come back to a more sustainable place of self-worth, which would be like, let me take a look at my values and like lead with values versus performance. Something that I was, was really huge for me was changing my perspective around like what is productive to making it like viewing it as meaningful. So like when we think of, okay, I have to be productive all the time. There are only like a few things that fit into the box of productivity. Right. Whereas if I can take a step back and be like, okay, like I want my life to be meaningful. It doesn't like, what's the, like, do I want my life to be productive? Like why? Like, so that when I die, I can like leave behind a bunch of like papers that no one's really going to read or like, you know, so that I can like feel really good about like the weight that I reached when I was like X age, you know, that it's ultimately going to change because everything's impermanent. Like it's, it's really coming back to this idea of like, okay, what, think about like when I'm on my deathbed, like how do I want to look back on my life and like what will have been important to me and like what really like makes me feel good moment to moment. Like yes, achieving to a certain extent does that, but it's also very fleeting. And with perfectionism, we achieve something, but then we like raise the bar higher, you know, because it's never good enough because there's this fear of like letting ourselves bask in our successes or like enjoyment. So, I mean, for me personally, like I really enjoy connecting, you know, like, and and most humans do like, again, that's a very primal instinct of ours is to connect and to have intimacy with people. And 
I also really enjoy learning and I also really enjoy challenge, but not because I want to achieve something because I love like the process of like creating and like, that's where I get my meaning from. So I guess I would, I'd encourage listeners to think like, what like gives me a sense of meaning and purpose in life? And can I lead with that as opposed to leading with like a focus on outcomes and achievements? And when you lead with that, it's like you win every time. Like you're always successful because even if like, you know, the company that you're creating isn't like making the revenue you were hoping for, you know that like your desire to build and create and help or have an impact or whatever it is that like was the reason behind you starting this company, like you're still doing that. That's still, you're still succeeding in all of those areas in terms of like living with your values and like leading with that is yeah, maybe you're not like getting the revenue that you were hoping for, but at the end of the day, like you're still meeting your expectations in terms of like living in line with your values. And like, that's how humans like stay happy, you know, is like by feeling that sense of meaning and feeling like we're, I guess, here for a reason and feeling connected. And so I guess like I'd encourage people to just like really start to peel away some of these onion layers and like question some of their beliefs around like what they're here for. You know, I mean, for, for me, a really formative moment was when I was 24 and I was like finishing my master's and I was like, struggling pretty seriously with anorexia and I was very, very, very thin. And like, I was with this guy and I had this worldview that like, if I am successful and I'm, you know, a certain weight, I can make sure that like the world will not crumble around me and everything will be good and everything will be fine. And I was like, not in a happy place at all, but like these kind of like excessive, like overworking and overachieving and like maintaining a very low weight were my ways of, of feeling good enough. And that was my perfectionism. And that was like how it manifested. And then the guy dumped me. He left me for, he left me for someone like in his, his master program. And it was like the most devastating breaking open, like experience of my life. And it literally took me two years to get over. And, but it was also the most transformative experience of my life because not only did I then learn how to deal with difficult emotions and like become friends with them, I guess you could say, but it also turned upside down this worldview of mine that was like, that's what's important in life and that's what people value in you and that's the way to feel happy and that's the way to feel good is to like achieve and do this and do that and it's like you know what like people aren't gonna love you more based on like how much you achieve and if there are people who are doing that like those aren't the people you want to surround yourself with you know so come back to like what do you value like what is important to you when you're on your deathbed what do you want to have like felt like you've experienced in this life and if like do you want to hide behind a desk for the next 50 years and then die like is that a good life to you maybe for some people it is i don't know but like i guess i would just encourage people to like really look at that and the other thing i know i've been talking for a really long time but the other thing that was like really formative for me is Alan Watts's perspective on like viewing life, not even like viewing it as a journey, because for for some people, it's like, you know, view it as a journey. Life's not about the destination. It's like, yeah, that's great. But let's take it to the next step. He talks about viewing it as a song. And like, you don't listen to a song because you're waiting for it to end. You know, like you're not trying to get to a destination point. It's you're listening to it to have an experience. And like, you want to have emotions evoked. And sometimes songs make you feel crappy, like, but in like a really like healing way. And sometimes they make you feel like, like, I mean, that's why there's so many different kinds of music. Right. And so try to think of your life as a song. And like, if you can just experience all of it and like be open to all of it and trust that like there are different emotions that you're going to experience and you're there to pay attention to it and to 
to be in it rather than to like get somewhere. Like those were super formative experiences for me. So hopefully there's like something in there that some listeners can, can take from those pieces of advice around like taking away the, I guess, finding that balance between like achieving yes. And like seeing what's important, but like, why is it important? And how can you find that balance where you can still experience life and like feel happy? You know, it's funny. I'm a huge fan of Alan Watts and he creeps into a surprising number of conversations we have here on the show. So I'm really glad that you brought him up. But awesome. that, that was an incredible explanation and, and some really, really good insights. For, for listeners who are curious and kind of want to do some more homework on this, I know you mentioned two books already. What are some resources that you think that would be good for them to check out? Yeah, for sure. I mean, definitely those books that I mentioned. So it was um, The Compassionate Mind by Paul Gilbert and Self-Compassion by Kristen Neff. I'd actually, I think Self-Compassion by Kristen Neff is a probably a more practical one for people if they want to choose one between between the two. Um, and it's more um, in line, like it's, it's a woman who's written it. She talks about a lot of like traditionally female experiences that we go through. But then of course, like I would love for you to check out my website, meganbruno.com is, I mean, there's one, one transperspective.com, but also like you can see more of my resources all compiled together at meganbruno.com. And there's a lot that I've written on like self-compassion and overcoming perfectionism and things like that. Really anything, a hugely formative book for me was When Things Fall Apart by Pema Chodron. So that's more of like secular Buddhism, like, and that's actually where self-compassion comes out of. It's like more of like a, and mindfulness and all that. It all comes out of secular Buddhism. So it can, it's, it's a, just like a very different way of like relating to the world, relating to your feelings, relating to life. And if someone is going through a difficult time right now, who's listening to this podcast, like that book, I mean, it like absolutely changed my life, but the amount of people who for whom it has changed their lives. Like you just, just go to Amazon and like read the reviews. So I really encourage people to read that book. Chris Germer is another person who does a lot of work on this. I think it's, I don't, oh, what is his website? I think it's mindfulselfcompassion.com, but I'm not 100% sure. Maybe I'll get it back to you and put it, you can put it in the show notes, but there are like really just like anything in the realm of you can just just Google self-compassion, you know, and there are tons of sites that come up and just start to like delve into this a little bit more deeply and download some audio like meditations and stuff to your phone because a, a big part of um, self-compassion is actually like becoming more in tune with our body and like feeling a sense of compassion from ourselves like physically. So it's not just a mental thing. And for many people who are perfectionistic, we are so detached from our bodies. Like we don't even, we have no idea what we're feeling because the moment we feel some uncomfortable, we, something uncomfortable, we do something to turn it off. So we either like distract through like some form of like, addiction or whatever, or we avoid it by like removing ourselves from the situation that's making us feel that way, or just never going into a situation that makes us feel that way. So a big part of self-compassion is also becoming more in touch with your body. So listening to some meditations and things that can help you get more in touch with like actually what you're feeling physically can be really helpful. And then also like yoga. I think everyone should do yoga. It's just such a great way to reconnect with your body and to practice a lot of the work that you learn reading these books to actually like implement it because you can have all the theory and knowledge in the world, but in, if you're not actually implementing it and experiencing it, it's not going to be that super beneficial and it's not going to help you like rewire your brain so that your brain defaults to self-compassion as mine does now, finally, like several years later, but it comes through the practice of like actually learning a new language. You will always have the language of self-criticism. Like you can go back to that if you want to, but what we want to do is we want to help you learn how to like default to self-compassion. And in yoga, you can start to practice being like, 
oh, this is interesting. I'm noticing I'm comparing myself to that person and they're doing that pose better than I am. Or I notice I'm beating myself up because I can't do this or I fell out of the pose. Or I notice that I'm like being super, super competitive. And, you know, is that helpful for me? And like, what's that like? And what emotions are going through it? And am I judging myself for being competitive? Maybe I can make space for my like sense of comparing and being competitive, but also like take a step back and be like, is this helpful for me? Can I relate in a different way? So um, I guess I would like recommend check out those resources, but also bring some form of like mindfulness, meditation, movement practice into your life where you can actually start to like get to know yourself better and how perfectionism and self-criticism acts on you and then start to actually put into practice a lot of the stuff that like you may have heard today and that you will learn through reading these resources. Well, we will make sure to include all of those resources in the show notes uh, at scienceofsuccess.co. And one more time, where can people find you online? Yeah, check me out. Um, so meganbruno.com. So it's M-E-G-A-N-B-R-U-N-E-A-U. It's French dot com. And then you can also find me like I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on YouTube. I'd love for you to send me an email if you have any questions or like if you just want to reach out and say hey or reflect or whatever. It's just megan.bruno at gmail.com. Again, I'm all, hopefully Matt can include these in the show notes. So yeah, so definitely like reach out to me. I love hearing from people. You know, it helps me come back to my values, which is like, I think I'm on this earth to help, you know, and uh, it helps remind me that, you know, even though there are a lot of trolls out there who love to say really negative things, because that's a part of this world as well. There are also people that appreciate it. So I, I, I love those sort of like warm fuzzies and stuff like that. But I also want to help you on your journey and in whatever way I can. So if there's a question you had, or if there's like a resource you're looking for, like, let me know and I'll do my best to help guide you on your journey because we're all in this together. Well, Megan, thank you so much. This has been a, a fascinating conversation full of actionable insights and, and some really great stuff. So we really appreciated having you on the show. Well, it was awesome. It was such a pleasure to be here, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. Listeners like you are why we do this podcast. The emails and stories we receive from listeners around the globe bring us joy and fuel our mission to unleash human potential. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at scienceofsuccess.co. That's M-A-T-T at scienceofsuccess.co. I would love to hear from you and I read and respond to every listener email. The greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes. That helps more and more people discover the science of success. Lastly, I get a ton of listeners asking, Matt, how do you organize and remember all this information? Because of that, we created an amazing free guide for all of our listeners. You can get it by texting the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222, or by going to scienceofsuccess.co, that's scienceofsuccess.co, and joining our email list. People love this guide. I get emails all the time, people telling me how much it's changed their life and how awesome it is. If you want to get all the incredible information we talked about, links, transcripts, videos, everything we mentioned in this interview, and much more, you can get all of our show notes at scienceofsuccess.co. Just go to scienceofsuccess.co, hit the show notes button at the top. You can get show notes for this episode and any of our previous episodes as well. We have transcripts, the whole nine yards. Lastly, I want to say thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. 